He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ today. We're glad that you have chosen to join us for this week's sermon of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. God's Word is full of timeless truths that are relevant to our lives today. Here's this week's message. If you have found yourselves in going to or attending different churches in your life, you know that there can be some odd moments in worship, that worship here in 21st century America can look vastly different based on the kind of church you go to. You can go to churches where they uh, are speaking in tongues, waving hankies, or they go in solemn and silent and don't hardly say a word. You can go where they have full bands of worship or go where there's no musical instruments at all. You can go where there's responsive readings or that there's no kind of cooperation or back and forth at all from the congregation. I just want to tell you just a couple quick kind of examples of this. When I, uh, I grew up, uh, my parents, when I was a child, the first couple churches we went to was a Baptist church and then a Nazarene church. And, and those churches, um, growing up there was oftentimes where, you know, people would wave their hands and singing, lift up their hands uh, when there was a song that they really liked and they resonated with and just spoke to their soul, and they would raise their hands in worship. Sometimes they would say amen when they heard something that resonated with them uh, in the congregation. You know, amen is a biblical word that means, yes, let it be known. That's what the word means in Scripture. So when we end our prayers with amen, yeah, we're saying to God, uh, God, what, I, what I've just asked, please let it be. <laughs> just as you, you've created the world, please create the answers for what I am lifting up to you. We say amen. And so I had kind of grown up with that. So when I went to college and started uh, working as a youth pastor at a Lutheran church, it was a little bit of a culture shock for me. It was a completely different format of worship, but it was okay. Uh, the, it was, everyone loved to hang out. Uh, all the people there loved to hang out. They had a lot of fun. They joked, and uh, they'd get together uh, after church. They'd get together in the foyer, and it was, it was a good community of people who knew each other. But once they walked into the sanctuary, Everything was solemn, everything was serious, and they just said the prayers and repeated the readings that were a part of that week. And, uh, but, and the pastor's sermons reflected in many ways the order of worship. Here are the points, I'm going to say it to you, that's the good news, and now I'm done. And that was kind of his... That was kind of the way he preached. Yes, preachers critique sermons too. And so, and so uh, a lot of times uh, in worship, I'm just like, I don't know. Okay, what's good news? All right. And just kind of went along with it. Okay, so be it. But there was this one Sunday, this one Sunday where it seemed like, you know, he was just getting into it a little bit more. He was owning that sermon. And he was saying some things that were just resonating with me. I was just like, yeah, that's right. That's spot on. And I was getting excited about that. And finally he said something and I just went, amen. And every single head turned <laughs> and looked at me. The pastor paused. Like, what? <laughs> and I just kind of slinked in the pew, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, like, that was just not part of the culture of worship there. My mom uh, grew up in a church much like that one, where she was used to 
uh, readings and, and, and prescribed prayers and things like that. And that was what she grew up with. And so when uh, she moved out and they got married, but that did not resonate with her at all. Did not, uh, she, she just felt like she could not connect that way. And so she didn't want to go to a church like that. So growing up, we had a Baptist church and a Nazarene church. And when we moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, when I was just going into high school, she tried the Nazarene church, and for whatever reason, on that Sunday, they had a responsive reading during the service. We don't have them very often, but we did. we've actually had it twice in the last two weeks. Ash Wednesday, we had one, and then uh, the psalm from last week, we turned into a response. We, the one that repeated itself again and again, we, uh, we ended up joining that chorus. But she, we had one, they had one that day in worship, and it just turned my mom off. And when we left, she's like, no, I don't want to go back to that church. And the only reason we went back is because the youth pastor at that church came and visited us that week and talked to my parents and then talked to them about uh, how uh, we, uh, her kids, could get involved in youth group. And, and he even told her, well, they did that response for me that week. It's not every week. And, uh, and, and they decided to give it another shot. And that is the beginning of my journey of continuing to be in the Church of Nazarene and being able to be where I am today. But you can see all kinds of different differences. And sometimes you got to find out, well, why do we do things that way? Or why does one church emphasize this aspect of worship versus that aspect of worship? It can, it can create culture shock moments. So imagine, of course, trying to figure out worship when you're removed two to 3,000 years and a different location, geography. And so that is part of the reason why we're doing this sacrifice series is because one of the ways, which would be a total culture shock to see today, would be if there was actually a sacrifice during a, a worship service. But that was a part of temple worship for them. And so we're kind of going through that and looking at what that looked like because it plays a big deal in the imagery, in the language that we find in Scripture. And today, we find ourselves in Leviticus chapter 4. Now, I want to tell you, Leviticus chapter 4 is one of those books that, uh, if, usually if I ask someone what their least favorite book of the Bible is, a good number of them is going to say this one. <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, preaching from, this is probably the book I've preached from the least, Leviticus chapter 4. It, it can get pretty dry. It can get pretty run out. It, it's basically giving a lot of details about how they're supposed to live their lives and how they're supposed to worship. In fact, even the lectionary, which is an annual tool that helps pastors go through just about the entire book of the Bible through preaching, most of the verses it skips are the ones in Leviticus. It's just one of those kind of books. And, but Leviticus, if I can tell you, it's the, the method to its madness, the, the, uh, the, the mission that it has, the, the kind of thrust for what it wants to accomplish is this. It wants to remind us that we can indeed live a life of holiness, that God calls us to a life of holiness, and calls us to holiness in our worship, and that our life and our worship are intertangled, that our life indeed affects our worship, and it does. If you think back on any week where you just felt real far away from God, you didn't care about God, you didn't do anything God wanted, and then like... Did you go to church that next Sunday? And if you did, what was it like going into worship that week? Our life affects our worship. And also one of the convictions of Leviticus is our sin violates our worship. Our sin infects and gets in the way of what we are trying, of the relationship God wants to have with us and affects our ability to worship Him.
And uh, in Leviticus chapter 4 is a chapter that's all about the sacrificial system and the sacrifices they would make. If you were reading from our bulletin inserts, the intersection, I had you read last week from Numbers instead of from Leviticus because Numbers, that passage in Numbers that's also in your bulletin, is basically a summary of Leviticus 4 and even 5 and into 6. And I decided that uh, I'm going to kind of just like hit certain verses. And if you want to follow along, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 4. Put your finger in there. It's the third book in the Bible. I'm not going to read the whole thing, because if I read those like two and a half chapters, I'd be reading for ten minutes. And I'm afraid, you, you know, I just don't want anyone checking out. But, uh, <laughs> but how we tend to understand sacrifices is when we, we tend to think of it as, you know, when someone sinned, they would make a sacrifice and everything would be absolved, everything would be okay, everything would be better. And I think we're kind of like trained to think of or accustomed to think of sacrifices as like a divine band-aid or something. Like, oh, I messed up, I sacrificed, okay, I'm good now. But sacrifices in the Old Testament had a greater function. We've already looked at how they could mark the beginning of a promissory relationship, what the Old Testament calls a covenant. We saw that with, um, with Abram. We saw last week how sacrifices can mark the remembrance of a remarkable day. It can be a holiday of remembrance, a commemorating a great event in the past. You know, just as, just as you know, we put, as I said last week, just as we put meat on the, uh, on, on the grill for 4th of July or Memorial Day, so in the same way, they would put meat on the grill to remember their important national holidays such as the Passover. Leviticus chapter 4 has another reason for those sacrifices. I'll read the first three verses here right now. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, When anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it's the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull of the herd without blemish as a sin offering to the Lord. This passage of Scripture, one of the things that strikes me right off the bat with this passage of Scripture is it tells us that this is for anyone who sins unintentionally. And I found myself, when I was looking at the story of these sacrifices, someone who sins unintentionally, oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, You know, this is when someone realizes they could have done more, or maybe someone who realized they should have done more than they did. And I found myself looking at this, oh, wait, this is about unintentional sins? Oh, unintentional sins of the priest. And I I continued on through chapter 4. I was like, oh, well, that's about unintentional sins of the leader. And I continued on, oh, well, that's unintentional sins of the people. And I found myself thinking that... uh, all of these sacrifices are about things that people realize later on that they did. Like when someone says, hey, you know, remember when you did X, Y, or Z? Well, it really hurt or offended or took from this person or from myself or something. And to realize, oh, I've messed up. The assumption was that there are often ways in which we might sin that we did not intend. But our God is a holy God, and we want to make sure that uh, we have not offended this God. We want to make sure that, as holy as God is, they want to make sure that even if they've messed up unintentionally, that they have redeemed themselves, that they have gotten in God's good graces, that they have made sure that the relationship with God has not uh, had a wedge driven in between it. So these sin offerings were were for anything done that reflects a life 
that is not holy. You'll find throughout this chapter and the next that these sacrifices are continually for unintentional sins. My takeaway from this is that when we realize we've wronged someone, when we realize we've wronged against God, even we're like, man, I didn't know, or, or I, I didn't mean for it to go that way or to go, get that bad. The purpose is let's make it right. Let's do whatever we can to kind of fix things. One of the greatest lessons my parents made, they would have an argument or a disagreement. You know, parents do that sometimes. They have an argument or a disagreement. If it ever got personal, you, you, you know what happens when an argument gets personal, right? It, it, it strays away from what the issue is and becomes a, but you, uh, always those kind of moments. One of the things that they did right is if they realized an argument got that bad, they would apologize. They would own up to, I'm sorry, I should not have insulted you the way that I did. They, they made it right. They realized, oh, I did not intend to hurt, but I realized that I did. I had, I had a good friend. His name was Jimmy. He was very charismatic, wonderful, hilarious person. He loved to joke with people. And he was one of those people, one of those friends that uh, you loved to joke with him as well. And he loved to do pranks, but he, he had a nature about him that like he, he, he would prank you or he would have fun with you and you would, you would love it. Like it was just like one of those, like, like it, was, it was all good humored and he was just hilarious. He was just one of those people that even if you got got, you still find your, found yourself liking him. He was just one of those kinds of people. And uh, so throughout high school, we were like best friends. We were together all the time, just had a blast together. And I remember we went to um, a youth camp together. We went to youth camp together and his cousin was there, his cousin Shane. And Shane and Jimmy were cut from the same cloth. They they were just a riot to hang around with. They laughed. They joked with each other. They gave each other a hard time, and they all knew that it was all in good fun, and that was just how it was, and it was great. And uh, one time, him and Shane, uh, you know, at the camp, they just, they, they, they both had to go to the bathroom. We went to the, the restroom, and, you know, Shane go, uh, Jimmy goes to the urinal. He goes to the, to the stall, and, of course, Jimmy gets done first. He's like, come on, Shane, let's go. And Shane's taking too long, so he decides to have a little fun with him. And so he goes over to the counter, <laughs> And he sees a little hand soap dispenser. And he says, hey, just in case you need to get clean. And he reaches it over the stall door and just starts squirting them. And, and Shane goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then he goes back and he gets a second one. And he goes, double trouble! And he just like sprays him down. And he comes running out of the bathroom because Shane's just yelling at him. I remember he comes running out of the bathroom and comes up and he says, Tim, Tim, I messed up. <laughs> I messed up big. I, th I don't think he's ever going to forgive me for this one. And he's just like, oh, man. And, uh, and the rest of that day was spent, you know, trying to resolve and uh, fix Jimmy's ridiculousness uh, in that moment. So those were moments in which, you know, unintentionally went way too far, maybe intentionally a little bit, but way too far uh, where it should have gone. But so I found myself looking at this pastor, but what about intentional sins? What about when someone just says, well, this is God's rule, I don't care, I'm doing what I want. And, and I couldn't find that at all in Leviticus 4 or 5. And, and as you look, you, you start to see that it was assumed by the people, if you're following God, you're not going to purposefully, willfully act against his rules. 
The assumption was that you will not do this. In fact, the Numbers passage says if anyone acts high-handed, that is, acting in precisely that willful way, I don't care what God says, it's a grave offense. It led to them being exiled and kicked out. And some, this is where you find the pastor, say, wait a minute, did they actually stone them? You see those, the, these stories of like uh, purposefully acting against God to hurt another people often meant you are kicked out of the community exiled or killed for various sins that, of course, seem harsh today. Part of the reason is we have John 8 in our, in, in our mindset. John 8 is the story of, of a woman caught in adultery, and, and the, the people are getting ready to kill her. And, Jesus, and she falls down before Jesus, and Jesus sees her there, and she sees the crowd coming, getting ready to stone her. And Jesus says to the crowd, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. This story is amazing for a couple of reasons. At first glance, it seems to me that Jesus is just saying, well, don't judge anyone harshly anymore. We're past that. But it's so much more as well. I mean, he does say that. But theologically, he's also telling us God's holiness is not diminished and God's holiness is not threatened by our sins, whether they were considered intentional or unintentional. We do not need to be safeguards of God's holiness in our communities. God's holiness is not preserved by kicking the sinners out or by making sure they're not living anymore. God's holiness instead is celebrated when sinners are welcomed into His presence to be redeemed and restored. When their sin is brought before God and set before Him so that God can consecrate it, sanctify it, make it holy. It's this redemption and restoration call that is indeed the purpose of the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament and in Leviticus chapter 4. Because their mindset at the time was that the holiness of God and the temple was threatened by the sins of the people. Because holiness was always seen as separate from, distinct from, the unclean, the dirty, the filthy, the, the rotten, the sinful. The purpose of the sacrifice was to take that which was not good and bring it before God that God would make something good out of it. So if anything was done unintentionally that might cause one to have a poor relationship with the Holy One, then a sacrifice would be made to restore that relationship because ultimately the purpose is to have a right relationship with God. In fact, there is... This idea of restoring a relationship with God, there is a word for that. There's, there's a word that uh, the, the scholars, the theologians, the biblical experts try to say, how do, we, how do we capture this in one word, this idea of restoring a relationship and being at one with God, of being like uh, having the right covenant relationship you're supposed to have, the one that Abram had, the one that we read that he made with um, uh, with Moses, uh, how do we? What's the word that says, "Hey, you guys are now on the same footing. You're at one. You're in the right relationship that the covenant requires." What is that word that says all has been restored and made well? Now you're at one together. They couldn't find one, and so they literally took the words "at" and "one" and put them together, and they said that'll be our new word. It's true. They just took "at one," put it together, and it became a tone. <laughs> and so now. Uh, there is a, a word for this. It's the Day of Atonement. 
It comes later in Leviticus, which is the one day when they would fast and they would sacrifice for those who had been punished or those who had been exiled. It was a chance for the entire damaged and affected community to be restored, that even those who had done so intentionally might be able to be restored and renewed. It is a desire to be at one with God. And that is our desire, to have that kind of relationship. Isn't that what we just sang before the sermon? That he would walk with me, and he'd talk with me. He'd tell me I am his own. And that our joy that we're going to share is hanging out, tarrying. It is just being in the presence of God. This is what the temple sacrifice is meant to do, restore that relationship. Verse 4 says this. Verse 4 says, He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of the bull, and the bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord. He would put his hand on the head, and this, this putting the hand on the head was, was a way of saying that this offering takes my place, and I am identifying with this offering. The offering was taking on the sin, the unintentional sin of the person, and the person was transferring, if you will, their responsibility onto the sacrifice. It's a way of saying, I yield in obedience to God and give of this sacrifice, which will give its life as a sign that I too will give my life before God, that I'll live obedient. And if the call is to give my life in obedience, then I will give my life in obedience. This sacrifice is a symbol of that. Because in reality, we can only give our life in obedience once. And so if you want to signify that you're willing to do so, the sacrifice was the way in which they do that. We, in our church today, do that with a symbol and a sign of another sacrifice. Whenever we receive the bread and the juice, symbols of the body and blood, that is the sacrifice that we receive as a way of saying, my life also is brought before the Lord. And then in verse 6, he says, he says this. I, I'm gonna, like I said, I'm going to skip around a little bit, so I skipped five, but verse 6 says this. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. Isn't that an odd picture? This symbol dipping the finger in the blood and sprinkling towards the sanctuary was a symbol to show that their sin, which had been uh, represented by the sacrifice, had been atoned for. They have been renewed with God. That their offering, which was restoring their relationship with God, was indeed extended to the temple. That the sins of the people would not infect the temple. It would not infect God's dwelling place. The purpose of sprinkling the blood was to make sure that their atonement included the temple, that their life indeed was reflected in their worship, that it would show that God will not and does not desire to leave his resting place. The atonement, the sanctifying of the gift extends even to where God is. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it was a unique passage. It was basically an introduction to the letter, but it had an interesting phrase. It says, we've been chosen, we've been destined by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. 
and to be sprinkled with his blood. Remember that from the passage in Peter? That he said you will be sprinkled with his blood. It is an odd allusion. It's an odd statement. What do you mean we're going to be sprinkled with his blood? What does that mean? But that phrase, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, 1 Peter is using Leviticus language. He's saying that the death of Jesus is more than just a tragedy of injustice. It is that, but it also signifies the holiness of God breaking out into our world to make us holy. That the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has chosen that death, the death of Jesus, to be the final death that will unite us with him. The death of Jesus Christ will serve as the means by which God's holiness breaks out into our world. And I love this picture. In Leviticus 4, the sprinkled blood is always directed towards the temple, whether it's the inner sanctuary or the curtain of the Holy of Holies or or, or the horn of the altar based on who's giving the sacrifice. If you go through the entire book, for the priest, it it would be sprinkled before the curtain, for the leaders, before the sanctuary, for the people at the the door of the temple. Basically, wherever they, as far as they were allowed to go into the temple based on who they were, that is where the blood would be sprinkled towards. So in, in the illustration of Peter, though, the sprinkling happens towards the exiles, towards the people in all those land areas that you read for us. John, it happens towards the people. You see, in the story of the resurrection of Jesus, the temple court curtain is torn in two. The hidden presence of God bursts forth, erupts into our world, and God's holiness is made available to all of God's people. The sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit will work in our lives now and is currently present among the unclean, among the broken, the hurting, the sinful, to bring us into right relationship with God and to do it even today. And the imagery of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 that was read for us earlier, and all this has been through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is what he is saying when he talks about the sprinkling of the blood. In Leviticus, the sprinkling of blood was an extension of the atonement practice of the community towards the temple. A way of saying our sin does not infect those around us anymore and it's not going to seep into the dwelling place of God. This sacrifice is is sent towards and to God. Visually, I can't help but think this serves another purpose. Besides the fact that, you know, if you imagine it happening, it looks terrible, but the story of this also is that um, the altar, where the blood was sprinkled at, at the base of the altar... It was cleaned ritually just once a year. Imagine this. The unintentional sins of the people represented by the blood and sprinkled at the base of the altar. Every time they would come to the temple, they would see it. Every time they would be reminded when they came to worship through near that they were far from God's holiness. Every time the signs of their sacrifices and their previous sacrifices were readily visible and they would be able to remember those moments and it would be able to help them say, okay, let me go forth with a further commitment not to contribute more. So Leviticus 4 continues on with like-minded descriptors for the leaders, for the congregation. The major difference being the kind of animals that they would sacrifice and the location where the blood would be sprinkled already mentioned about the direction that the blood would be sprinkled was based on 
who was offering and how far they were able to get into the temple gates. But the reason for the animal differences has largely been lost to time. Most commentaries agree that there's some kind of cultural reason for this. But the difference primarily being a, a, just a general progression of expensive sacrifice to cheaper sacrifice to allow people of all incomes to come to the temple. Yet in doing this series, I've come to discover, I think, another detail, another, another point. In verses 4 and 15, they gave a bull. The people could bring a goat in verses 24 and 28 of Leviticus chapter 4. Perhaps a sheep in verse 32. Also, two birds were allowed as a sacrifice in chapter 5, verse 7. That was for the poorest. In fact, there is an example of this in Scripture when Jesus' parents take the child to the temple and go for an offering. They bring two birds, showing indeed that they are among the poor. Jesus was not born to a wealthy, a wealthy family. But what I notice in these animals presented for the sin offering is this. They're all the same animals offered by Abram to the Lord during the covenantal sacrifice. Each of those animals are represented in the initial covenant sacrifice of Abram that we talked about two weeks ago. Remember when he sacrificed the different animals and he laid them out and the Spirit of God walked between them? This reiterates what I've been saying about these sacrifices. These sacrifices are not a guilt-based offering so that people, you know, can just kind of like dust off their hands... Feel like, oh, well, I can just keep on sinning now. I'm okay. God's happy with me now. No, the purpose of these offerings was to restore the covenant relationship with God, to recognize that their life is going to be lived in absolute commitment to God. Sacrifices were not an easy, well, glad I got that out of the way, but they reflected the desire to testify to God that they want to walk faithfully with Him. And these sacrifices were to make sure that there wasn't anything remotely neglected or left out and that they would make it right. They would present the animal, they would commit themselves to God, and today they would say, today as this animal dies, my life is needed for you and given over to you in obedience. I think there has been, I know at least in my life, but I think over the last many centuries and overgeneralization about the Old Testament and about Jewish faith and the whole sacrificial system. Often it's described as a way that they could appease God, placate Him, the, uh, otherwise a, a way of making so He wasn't as angry with us, a way to make themselves feel better for sins that they have committed. But Leviticus chapter 4 shows us that this is not the case at all. Sacrifice has always indicated an impulse by the people to recognize their deficiency before a holy God, and their desire to conform all aspects of their life to His will. In the Church of the Nazarene, that is a part of what we call the call of holiness. Say, I want to put all aspects of my life before you, God, and ask you to sanctify the gift and the giver. That we might be devoted to God and say, God, everything about me, my will, my whims, everything I want to give over to you, and sure trust that His Holy Spirit will work and change who I am. We pray for this. We confess with Peter that the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit has indeed moved out to the entire world. That God has made the first move towards us. And we're no longer just trying to live up to this God and make sure that we're enough. We're trying to respond to the work God's already doing. 
indeed what he's already done in the life of Jesus Christ. As we come forward for communion today, remember, we didn't need to bring a sacrifice. We don't have to sprinkle blood at the altar and leave it there for a year. Uh, By the way, reminder, our cleaning day is Saturday (laughs) in a couple weeks. Uh, uh, We don't have to leave leave that there. But uh, not only are those foreign and ancient practices that we're unaccustomed to, but the one who unites us and makes us one with God is Jesus Christ. His blood has already been sprinkled for us. And so we're going to come forward for communion for the Eucharist, the gift of God to us, so that God's holiness might break forth in our lives. And we're going to come forward, and just as they would lay hands on their sacrifice, we open up our hands and we receive the bread and the juice, what we call blood and body. A way of remembering that our salvation, our holiness comes through God the Father, through Jesus Christ the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled indeed to be able to come before you, to be able to worship you and celebrate what you want to do in our lives. And Heavenly Father, we can come to church on any given Sunday, and on any given Sunday we can feel that for whatever reason we are unworthy, or for whatever reason you could um, turn your back on us, or you could uh, uh, stop uh, looking at what's going on in our life. But Heavenly Father, that's not the covenant you made with us. You promised to always be our people. You promise, or you promise to always be our God and that we could always be your people. And you promised to go with us, that you promised to be with us. And uh, we saw in the passage in Exodus that you came in the shape of a cloud and you guided the people. And now it's your Holy Spirit that is dwelling within each of our lives that indeed we can walk with you and we can talk with you and we can have a relationship with you, one where we can speak directly to you and we can pray and And we can ask each and every day and each and every moment for your guidance. And so, Heavenly Father, we come today to worship and to the table. Heavenly Father saying, wherever we have been, wherever we have allowed sin to drive a wedge, Heavenly Father, we're asking you to remove that wedge. And we're asking, Heavenly Father, that you would make us one with you and your will and that promise you have made with us. And so, Heavenly Father, we're going to come forward and we're going to receive this symbol that represents, indeed, our desire to unite with you and our desire for your saving and sanctifying power in our life. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve Him today.